This is Icebergs, Oceans, and the Experience of Pain. Our distinguished faculty today includes, to my far right, Becky Curtis, who's a professional certified coach at the International Coach Foundation out of Lexington, Kentucky. And also locally here, Dr. Mel Pohl, who's a clinical assistant professor at the University of Nevada School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. He also serves as a chief medical officer at the Las Vegas Recovery Center down the road in Las Vegas here. Please help me welcome our distinguished faculty. Good morning to everybody. Can you hear me in the back? Raise your hand if you can't hear me in the back. Uh, can you not hear me? You can hear me. <laughs> oh, God. So we, we don't have any disclosures, and uh, here are our objectives. Uh, we'd like to talk about chronic pain and give you some context for the concept of suffering. So we want to describe cause, the, what causes 80% of the suffering for people who have chronic pain, uh, then define a more effective process for addressing that 80% problem during a routine office visit, and explain the power of positive and negative thoughts on the chronic pain experience. So I am uh, Chief Medical Officer of a treatment program here in Las Vegas, as you heard, uh, and we are uh, essentially a functional restoration program. Uh, we're an addiction program, but we started treating people who have co-occurring pain and addiction, finding that when they came off their addicting medications, particularly opioids, but often benzos, sometimes alcohol and stimulants, they were left with a pain condition that really needed attention. So I got real interested in pain, and I've learned a lot of uh, what I know about pain from meetings like this and, and others around the country and studies, et cetera. I'm not a certified pain doc. I'm a family doc, actually, um, and an addiction specialist certified in addictions. So that's my, my, my backstory. Uh, and one talk I went to here uh, several years ago explained the difference between acute pain and chronic pain because most of us are here to talk about the, the treatment of chronic pain. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. So it turns out the only thing that acute pain and chronic pain have in common is the word pain. They are totally different processes. Now, when I go around the country and I talk to addiction audiences, they, they look mystified. I gave a talk to orthopedic PAs last week, and they didn't, they didn't seem to resonate with that. What about here? And does that make sense to people that acute and chronic pain are really different processes? Is that? Okay, I see nodding, so that's good. Um, so acute pain is related to tissue damage. It's a signal, kind of hardware signal. Uh, as I explained, it's almost like an alarm clock going off. It tells you something's wrong, do something about it. When the tissue damage heals, which it tends to do 95% of the time, pain goes away, right? It's a useful signal, functional, and temporary. Chronic pain is an entirely different process. It starts with perhaps tissue damage or not, but the real significance of the experience of chronic pain is that it radiates where? I mean, where does that signal go? It goes to the brain. And chronic pain ends up being, of course, a process that occurs inside the limbic system, the part of the nervous system that mediates a whole bunch of stuff, as some of you well know, uh, but it really is the part of the brain where emotions are, are mediated. So what happens in our medical system, we medicalize the problem of chronic pain as if it was acute pain, and we go after it, we look for tissue damage. We do MRIs and functional MRIs and uh, CTs with contrast and stand the patient on their head and do another MRI study and inject the disc, and we prove that the cause of the pain is such and such. Let's say it's a disc, 
And then we go after it with a needle. How many people do epidurals and radiofrequency ablations? Some. We go after it, often helps temporarily, often doesn't. And we clobber the pain with a blunt object, an opioid. And at the end of this process, we end up with a patient who usually or often is not responding, has persistence of pain, and then what do we do? Well, if you have a degree in uh, certification in surgery, you go after the tissue damage with a knife. Does that sound like what we do here? And I see patients who have gone through this process, have been unsuccessful, have persistence of chronic pain, and they come in and they report to me that they went to the doc, the doc did the surgery, and what does the doctor say? They say, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I took care of the problem. Right? Isn't that the message we give? So, and what's the, what's the corollary to that message? If, if, if the pain is not related to what I did, where's the pain? It's in your head. <laughs> You're making it up. You're histrionic. And that's a terrible disservice. So I want to start there. So I, I learned five things uh, in the course of treating chronic pain. And the first is that the pain is real. To challenge a patient and suggest that their pain experience is not real is a disservice to the patient. There's actually was an article in JAMA a couple of years ago about the cost of disbelief. When I sit across from a patient and in my heart of hearts I think, this really, they're making it up, they're exaggerating. And oftentimes there's a, a counter position because the patient's there for a purpose. What's the purpose? They want to get their script refilled. Now that's not nefarious. That's because they want relief from the pain and in their life experience, the only thing that's working for their pain, kind of a little, is the opioid that, that you might be prescribing. So that doesn't make them fake and it doesn't make them unreal. And if I sit there disconnecting from the patient, do you know the most important thing that any clinician does? I'm talking about physician, uh, PA, nurse practitioner, nurse, uh, psychotherapist, the most important thing that we do as clinicians is, yeah, listen and then connect with the patient. So if the very first thing I do is in my heart of hearts, I think this person's full of crap. I am disconnecting from that process. And, and you know, there have been articles written about this. The mistrust that develops between the patient and the doctor is a disservice to the patient. So I try my best to start out with a position of believing what the patient tells me because I do believe that the pain is real. However, is the pain physical or emotional? Because that's the question that I get asked a lot by people who refer patients to me. And I always answer the th same thing. Yes, the pain is real. And of course, the pain is related to emotions and thoughts about that pain. And Becky and I have had this conversation many times my belief, my observation, my experience is that 80% of the experience of chronic pain is, is uh, uh, emotional and cognitive. And that's what we have to deal with. Now, that may not be you individually that deals with it, though if you are willing to listen and then develop some pretty simple skills that we'll talk about this morning to interact with that patient, you may be able to move that patient a little bit off the mark. I mean, it turns out that the process of chronic pain is in the insula and the prefrontal cortex and the nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area, different than acute pain. Acute pain is thalamic uh, relay. And we've got a, a, a carrion from the Northwestern University showed thalamus lights up with acute pain, nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area light up with chronic pain. Anybody familiar with what happens in the nucleus accumbens and ventral tegmental area? 
That's where motivation, reward, and that's where addictive substances really act. So we now have a process, a pain process, that's related to uh, hippocampal input, so the memory of the experience and the thoughts about the experience and the anxiety and the fear and the depression that comes along with the uh, physical experience. And we end up with this conundrum, this very complex process. And we treat it like it's simple. We treat it kind of like, and I don't mean we, because I'm sure probably everybody in here is already on the same page. But our medical system treats this condition as if it were acute pain, and we go after it as a unimodal condition, and it's not. Uh, we separate mind from body. I mean, well, that's ridiculous. It doesn't make any sense to me. Does it make sense to you, you folks? I mean, th does it make sense to separate mind from body? It doesn't make intuitive sense to me when I talk about it. Anyway. So and we've got quite a bit of data that uh, functional MRI studies of chronic pain that really sort of proves this. It's a tough sell for patients. I mean, I, I talked to my patients about these two principles, and I had a woman who turned red in the face and she said, I'm checking out of this place. You're full of crap. She says, you're telling me my pain is in my head. And I said, well, you have chronic headaches, so where else is your pain? <laughs> But it was, it was as if I had insulted her because I was suggesting that if it was in her head, it wasn't real. Okay, uh, the third principle is that opioids often make the pain worse. I'm not an opiate nihilist, but I'm leaning in that direction because I see the negative consequences. I mean, we're a tertiary care center. We see people who have not done well on opioids. I know that there are people who do, but opioids do several things. I mean, it's kind of like a roller coaster effect of on and then off which eventually causes the development of tolerance and physical dependence. If somebody's physically dependent on a drug, in between doses, they're gonna have a reemergence of symptoms. So people with chronic opioid use often have a higher pain level. Furthermore, opioids cause opiate-induced hyperalgesia. And I hope everybody knows that's a real phenomenon, but if not, Google it, and there's you know, tons of very scientific articles about it. I don't have time to review them all, but basically, glutamate goes up, NMDA goes up, so there's a stimulation of the central nervous system, sympathetic uh, over, overplay, and glial cells become activated. So we basically have a, an elevated nervous system. Opioids, turns out, in most patients, or many patients, I'll say, are pro-inflammatory. Uh, and for us, we take people off their opioids and we find out that they have less pain off the opioids than on them. One of the things that happens in our centers, we have a milieu where a bunch of people have been there a while, and they can say to the patient who's just admitted, thinking that this is the craziest thing they've ever done, because they know that they need their opioid. They know that their pain isn't going to get better. How do they know that? Because they've tried to go off. They've even gone a full day without the opioid, and what's happened? Their pain is soared through the roof. Therefore, they conclude they can't come off opioids. That's physical dependence, as many, as you, as many of you know. And physical dependence may be associated with addiction, but not necessarily. So patients who disconnect from the idea that they have addiction, they don't want to be addicts, they're just taking their pain medicine, don't want to feel like they're in withdrawal because they feel like withdrawal is related. No, I'm not in withdrawal. I'm just taking my meds as prescribed. Well, this happens to patients who take their meds as prescribed. And we've done quite a bit of research on this, and it turns out that people who take opioids chronically who are physically dependent have a, a complex dependence. It's not the same as being dependent on a blood pressure medicine or uh, a beta blocker. 
there's a connection. Why is that? Because the opioid works in the nucleus accumbens, ventral tegmental area. It suppresses anxiety. It energizes a, a group of people. So that the and the connection, the interplay between pain relief and reward is inextricably linked in our brains, in all of our brains, but particularly in patients who end up in this very complex dependence process. The fourth issue is, I'm sure that this group is well familiar that we treat to improve function. That's what it ought to be about. It's not the question oughtn't to be what's your pain score. It oughtn't to be what's the matter. It ought to be what matters to you. How far do you walk? Are you engaged in your life? Do you go to work? Are you laughing? Or are you in bed a good part of the day? If you're in bed more than you're out of bed, and you're in bed more now than you were three months ago when we started the opioid, well, that's a, that's a failed trial. And, and uh, the final point is expectations influence outcome. If we have time, I'll talk about that a little later. But I'll just tell you, pessimists have a more realistic view of life, but optimists live longer. There was just actually a study from the National Academy of Science People who are optimistic sleep better and live longer, swear to God. So, does that sound true? Yeah. Um, okay, this is the chronification of pain, and it starts with transient action, activation of the peripheral nociceptors, but it's the sustained activation that causes a sensitization of the nervous system, but really it's this plasticity that changes the middle part of the brain, and we can prove this with an MRI study. This is a uh, from Abkarian's uh, work, and you can see a normal, healthy brain on the left uh, and a, a chronic pain with quite a bit of atrophy. And it turns out if the pain diminishes over the course of time, there's a reversal of some of that pattern. Uh, and I'm a little over time, but I just want to say that some people feel more pain than others, right? Would you agree? So as an example, we, we know that people either magnify their pain symptom or uh, equalize or diminish their pain symptom. It turns out COMT is one of the reasons for that. COMT is an enzyme system, catecholomethyltransferase, that metabolizes a bunch of different neurotransmitters, dopamine and uh, epinephrine. So different versions of COMT cause either more pain or less pain. So Becky has the version of COMT, let's say. She doesn't. But let's say she had the version that magnifies the pain scale. I poke her this hard and what does Becky do? She, oh my God, get away, Mel. Oh, please don't do that to me. Now, what would we say or think? We wouldn't say it because we're polite, but what would we think about Becky if she's whining? Big whiner, right? Histrionic baby, wuss, right? M worse, I know. There's worse in the back row there. I heard it. I'm not going to say it out loud. But, the, but think about this. You're in your office and somebody comes in reacting the way she does to something that you wouldn't react to and most patients don't react to and we have a response to that well it turns out there's a genetic predisposition to COMT which causes a sensitivity to pain and people who have been traumatized have a intensified pain response they tend to catastrophize more and there's quite a bit of data that supports that as well uh, and finally just to point out that the brain of somebody like the example I had with Becky is that a normal nine points of pain response in the brain in somebody who has that condition uh, is amplified. So we're, we're talking about uh, central sensitization, an exaggeration of a normal touch response. And of course, that condition, if it's in enough spots in the body, is fibromyalgia. So if you ever sat with a patient who, sit, who had fibromyalgia and you rolled your eyes, I'm here to ask you to reconsider that. So I'm going to turn it over to my colleague here. <coughs> Can everybody hear me okay? So everything I know about pain 
I learned by accident, literally. Some of you have heard my story. I've spoken here at Pain Week before. This is my Jeep Grand Cherokee um, after a rollover accident. When the car came to a stop, I knew that I had broken my neck. Um, I, I, had, uh, I have a C4 incomplete um, spinal cord injury. And I worked really hard. I was in rehab for a long time. I worked really hard. I had great doctors and everything was going really well. And then I started having burning nerve pain from the neck down. And we just couldn't figure out what it was. And I thought I was going to die. I already had um, pins and needles. So you know how it feels when your hand falls asleep. Um, take that times 10. And I already have that going on neck down um, from C4 down. I have. Um, I don't have feeling on this side of my body. I have Brown's Accord, so we have that crossover in the brain where you have sensory on one side and motor on the other side. So I have partial paralysis on this side and spasticity. I have the pain that comes with having spasticity on one side and not on the other. And now I have this burning nerve pain, and what is it? And we finally figured out what it was. I have a spinal cord syrinx in the middle of, of my spinal cord at C4 fluid-filled cyst that causes burning nerve pain from the neck down. And there isn't any, um, you know, we tried all kinds of different medications, and what we discovered that opioids were not the answer, you know, we tried all kinds of different, gabapentin, Lyrica, um, I could give you my whole list. My very favorite um, for this um, nerve pain is Valium. And I can tell you, and my doctor explained to me, that that would not be a good life for me. And I'm very, very grateful because I would not be doing what I'm doing um, on Valium. Um, it does take it down a little bit, but I decided I didn't want to do that. So we, we tried to figure out different ways. Um, I'm gonna, there's no evidence chronic opioid therapy benefits most people. Unfortunately, opioids remain the de facto treatment for most workers with chronic pain, and this is some data um, talking about injured workers. Um, I am an injured worker, so I was on the job when this accident happened. And so I finally my doctor sent me to a functional restoration program very similar to what Dr. Pohl works with in California. And while I was there, I discovered that pain is an experience. And it's an experience that happens in the brain, just like um, Dr. Pohl just explained, and that there are many different things I can do to manage my experience of pain. So I started implementing these things into my life. Um, I started exercising. I could do 90 seconds on the elliptical when I started. And I'm very, very grateful um, that I just continued um, to increase and increase my functionality. I got one no from workers' comp, and that was for a scooter, um, and I'm, I'm grateful for that no. Um, as I hike um, seven miles or five miles to the waterfall or whatever hike I'm on, um, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm very grateful for that no for the scooter because I've just gotten stronger and stronger and stronger. And I know this doesn't happen for everybody, but exercise is a big piece of what keeps me um, able to sleep at night, able to uh, manage my pain, um, able to travel and, and do, do what I want to do, keeps, keeps the mood up. And so the, the whole paradigm shifts from um, a passive cure me. There has to be a pill, an injection, a surgery, a procedure that 
has got to cure this, my whole paradigm shifted from cure me to I've got this. I can be an active manager of my own experience of pain. And during this time at the Functional Restoration Program, I was asked, what do you want to do with your life now? Now, I want to tell you, I was two years out when the syrinx developed. I was three years out from my accident when I was at the Functional Restoration Program. And this was the first time anyone had ever asked me what I want to do. Um, they had, I guess, all assumed, oh, she has a spinal cord injury. She can just sit in the recliner for the rest of her life, even though I was 40 when this happened. And, you know, I would say that's too young to just sit in a recliner or lay in a back room and do nothing. So I decided that I wanted to spend the rest of my life helping people that have chronic pain. And I, I decided that there was a missing piece, and that missing piece was support for those who don't have the coping skills that they need to really manage their experience of pain. And I developed a telephonic coaching program. Um, and we, um, we, talk, we work with um, veterans um, in Oklahoma. We work with injured workers in 46 states. We work with self-pay, anybody who needs the help. And most of the people that we get um, have been in pain for a really long time. And because they've been in pain for a really long time, we've put together a really special year-long program that utilizes motivational interviewing and other coaching modalities that help people um, that have ambivalence and resistance and are angry and depressed and aren't sleeping at night and aren't exercising during the day. We help them little step by little step um, take control and move pain out of the driver's seat. So we know that the longer that we've been negative, angry, and passive, the more brain change we will need to make. Because of the plasticity in the brain, everything is reversible. This is the best news ever, guys. In the same way that muscles and joints can be made more healthy and robust, so too can homoculus arrangements in your brain. And this is the premise on which we start, that in the same way that what we focus on, we empower and enlarge, um, in the same way what we don't use, we lose. Did anybody in here learn a language in high school? How is it now? Yeah, not so good unless you're using it over and over and over again. If you, knew, if you move to a new country and you're immersed in it and you're having to use it every day, it, you do great. But when you learn something once, and pain is a learned phenomena. You saw those pictures of the brain in pain. The more we focus on something, the more we focus on learning a language, learning to drive, pain. And pain becomes a focus for most people with chronic pain. It's, it's what everybody asks you about. How's your pain? Oh, it's terrible. You know, life is terrible. I'm probably at a 10 or a 12. <laughs> You're on fire? Well, anyway, <laughs> you have a knife in your back? I don't know. But um, it becomes the main focus of every conversation. And people lose their friends, they lose their spouses, they lose their job, and they don't, they don't have the so social support that they need. And so what ends up happening is they end up laying in a back room um, drinking a Mountain Dew and eating Twinkies. And I'm not exaggerating. That was the total diet of one of the veterans when we started working with him. That was what he was 
um, subsisting on. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> um, so what we want to do is we want to help change that mentality from cure me to I have what I need right here um, and I can, I can turn this around. Um, and I think we're going to um, go back to Dr. Pohl now. Okay. <clears throat> Trade places. So, <laughs> Becky's my hero. I just have to tell you the, the fact that I'm up here with her. I, I met her at Pain Week many, many years ago and uh, chatted with her and saw her uh, function and brought her out to the treatment center. And, you know, she's just an inspiration. I, I hope you feel the same way, uh, but she is for me. And she's doing the work. She's really doing the work. So I want to spend a few minutes talking about what we can do you can pick up some, some tools. Uh, if you can partner with somebody who is more expert in some of these therapies, uh, all the better. I mean, I, I'm lucky. I have a, a team that does this work. We have psychologists and we have uh, counselors and therapists and uh, behaviorists and uh, physical therapists and acupuncturists. I mean, you know, they're all sort of consulting or, or, or uh, full-time on our staff. So we have this multimodality uh, impact. If, you, if you're in private practice, it's going to be harder to, to affect that, but not impossible. So Becky talked about some of those thoughts. You know, I have a knife. I feel I have a knife in my back. Or how many people in the room, tell the truth, have said that a particular body part, your back, your shoulder, your knee, is killing you? How many have said that? Yeah. Look at that. They're all alive. Isn't it a miracle? You know, I have a bunch of patients who say, oh, doc, my back is killing me today. And I say, well, what's the cause of death going to be on your death certificate, sir? So that's a combination of cognitive restructuring and irreverence, you know. And I think what, you know, what Becky said, identity becomes pain. So separating from you are not the pain, you are a person and you have a condition and you have a number of conditions and you have children and you have a job and skills. And to enable the person to really sort of separate from the pain identity to who they are. And there's a, a technique called acceptance commitment therapy, third on the list, Stephen Hayes from the University of Reno. And it really talks about finding what's valuable and then learning skills to commit to that value. Cognitive behavioral therapy has a great database of its efficacy for pain, and it's really about changing those all-or-none, black-and-white thoughts, it, the tendency to catastrophize, all the, the manipulations that people do with their thoughts that are faulty, in essence, and really help them reframe the narrative. Um, there's a lot of complementary and alternative therapies. I'm not a, 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 a proponent necessarily, but they're worth exploring. And if people have the resources and the funds, I mean, we have a, a biomat which is filled with crystals and has a, an intense heat. And people get on the biomat and their pain goes down 40%. I'm, I'm in. You know, I mean, there's no, no negatives to it. And, you know, there's so, there are a lot of things to explore. Motivational interviewing is taking a person's willingness and desire to change so their ambivalence. I can't do this, I want to do this. And helping drive them towards the healthy outcome, which is I, I, I want to do this, let's find some skills for you. And that's a terrible description of motivational interviewing. But if you're interested, look it up. It's a great skill set. And we can train in it uh, as, as clinicians. 12-step programs do have efficacy with 
addictions, turns out they also have efficacy with chronic pain. There's chronic pain anonymous, pills anonymous, and it's really an opportunity for patients to sit around in a, a group of like-minded people and not, not uh, uh, go into the, the worst of it, but really to commiserate and to find some solutions. Um, Self-management is, is one thing I want to talk about, and then uh, and mindfulness. So uh, self-management is really what, what Becky was talking about. We have uh, a study going on right now, and we've used the pain self-efficacy scale. Uh, it's a questionnaire, P-E-S-Q, ten questions, and we've added ten questions. And it's things like, I can walk as far as I need to. Uh, I can sleep well without medications. Uh, I, can, I can go back to work. Uh, I enjoy my family. And what we found is that people come in with a very low score when they start out. They're mostly externally focused. You do this for me, this medication, this physical therapy. And even at the beginning of treatment, the patients say, I like the acupuncture. That's what's, that's what's made me better. But we try and move them through the, the sense of external locus of control to internalizing. No, I can take care of this. So going to physical therapy and using passive modalities is much less impactful in the long run than going to physical therapy and learning how to move. Uh, motion is lotion. You know, people are immobilized. They don't move because it hurts, and they have to move. Uh, because if, if they don't move, you, you know what happens. They get, they get uh, frozen and uh, lowered circulation. So the best outcomes are achieved when the patient's actively involved in management of their illness. It addresses the psychological, social, environmental, biological, and spiritual factors. So that's that holistic approach to pain. I would leave you with nothing more uh, today than the idea that pain is not unidimensional, but rather multidimensional. And any area that you can get some expertise in or work with somebody who has that expertise to chip away at some of that uh, monolithic nature of the pain, the pain, that's how patients perceive it. And it's not the pain. If, if you've ever really gone in and we do some meditations, I'll talk about mindfulness, but if you look around the edges of the pain and if you look at the, the boundaries and the nuance and the changeability of the experience of pain, people have a different, can readapt and, and, and adjust to a different sense of it. Uh, and it, it helps people be more active and independent. And as Becky said, that's really the, the key here. Uh, Self-management, systematic provision of education, supportive interventions by healthcare professionals to, to increase patient skills and patient's confidence in managing their health problems, including regular assessment of progress. So that's the other thing. I mean, we have to make sure that things are working. This longitudinal in-it-for-life concept is really important. So if we're going to teach somebody self-efficacy, we ought to check in with them in a month and see how that's working and check in with them at three months and, and find out. And that's Becky's coaches work with the patients for a, a year uh, at least, right? Um, so mindfulness practice, how many people are familiar with mindfulness in some capacity? Oh, great. How many people think it's really a good thing? Great. All right. How many people have a personal mindfulness practice? Raise your hand. <laughs> About half of the people that think it really works. So <laughs> point taken. How many people use it in their clinical practices? Yeah, about the same. So that's good. That's really good. Um, a lot of people say, I can't meditate because I can't quiet my mind. Great. There's no purpose to meditation. The, the meditation mindfulness practice, and this comes from John Kabat-Zinn, Full Catastrophe Living. Uh, he has some great CDs about meditation and, and specifically about pain. And he says it's the willful directed attention to the present moment. And this is really key without judgment. 
I mean, we can notice the moment and notice how much pain we're in and judge the hell out of it. And that is not a mindfulness practice. Noticing the pain present and allowing the judgment to fade away. And the, the key to mindfulness is it's like tuning an instrument. You have to do it on a regular basis. I had somebody said, yeah, I, I meditate like once a month and it really helps a lot. You know, and, and it's human nature, right? We don't, we don't maintain things. And what Becky said is true. Cells that fire together wire together. So if you do practice, I mean, you have to practice anything that's going to work for you. And it ha- to sustain it, you have to keep doing it. Uh, and external reinforcement for that maintenance is really very key because I'm not self-sustaining a- at all. Um, it's a metacognitive process. So different than CBT, we're not looking at the thoughts. We're noticing that we're thinking. And when we notice we're thinking, we just gently redirect our attention to the object of meditation, which is often just the breath. And it changes the relationship with our thoughts. So by practicing this, and I'll show you a little bit of the data, by practicing this, we change the relationship with thoughts so that when terrible thoughts come up, I'm dying of my back pain, I can just do the same things without even sitting on a cushion and meditating, and I can help redirect my thinking. And we can also detach from thoughts. So we become more of the observer uh, of, the, of the experience. You know, uh, Kabat-Zinn says, when you step back from the pain and you notice that you're in pain, think about this, when you notice that you're in pain, is the part of you noticing, the part of you that notices, is that part of you in pain? And the truth is it's not. So if you can step back and be with that observer part of you, and you can do that by practicing, you will have less experience of pain. So what is it? This is, uh, what do I want? Mindfulness. When do we want it? Now. So there is a bit of impatience even among the Buddhist monks. Um, So these are, uh, you know, a lot of effects. The neuroplasticity that Becky pointed out is enhanced by meditative practice. Uh, It enhances connections, affects neurotransmitter levels, specifically decreases cortisol and epinephrine, the excitatory neurotransmitters, and increases serotonin and GABA, the relaxing antidepressant neurotransmitters. One study of 27 older adults in three months of meditating showed less pain, improved attention, enhanced well-being, and improved quality of life. And there's a ton of research. Dr. Zayden has been here. I don't know if he's here this year, but he talks about the research. Just four days of training, there was a decreased pain unpleasantness and, and he shows all different parts of the brain, the anterior cingular cortex and anterior insula change, thalamic uh, deactivation and decreased activation of the somatosensory cortex. I feel the pain, but I'm not as upset about it. I'm able to let it go. I'm going to close with the thought that we need to treat the whole person. If you want to use opioids, opioids are maybe a quarter of the process, maybe or less. So medical services, behavioral therapy, social services, and wherever spirituality goes on that diagram, uh, probably up on the top, are really uh, involved. And uh, Voltaire said, the art of medicine consists of amusing the patient while nature cures the disease. Becky. So I want to tell you about a 49-year-old man who um, we worked with. When we started with him, Um, He had many failed back surgeries. He had diabetes. He was housebound. I think he was about 400 pounds. Um, He was on 12 different medications, and he was socially isolated. 
absolutely no exercise. He told me that when he started, he said, my doctor said, if I move the wrong way with all this metal in my back, I could, I could give myself a spinal cord injury, and so I can't move. And so we, we had a conversation with the doctor. Um, in, in his coaching process, um, we, when we got to the exercise lesson, he said, well, I can't do anything um, except for swim. But there's only two pools in the little town that I live in, and um, there's only one that's warm enough for me to swim in. And that's where all the rich, skinny people go to show off. So I can't go there. And I said, <laughs> I said, oh, you can't go there. And he said, no, because um, they'll say things about me. And I said, well, what do you think they would be saying about you? And he said, well, you've never seen me. And, you know, you have to remember that my, my whole program is telephonic. So he, it was right. I had never seen him. And I, I couldn't imagine what could be so terrible. And he said, well, I'm, I'm 400 pounds. I'm 6'4". I'm 400 pounds. And I'm black. And, and I said, and what are some of the things that you think people would think when they go to, you know, when they see you at the workout place? And he said... Oh, well, I think they would say, how did somebody let themselves get like this? And if I looked like that, I'd never go out of the house. And he had a whole big list of things that he thought people would be thinking. And I told him, I said, um, you know, I asked permission to tell him what I thought when I saw someone like him working out at the pool. Because I did all my, my rehab at the pool. Almost all of it was done in the pool. And I told him, I said, I haven't forgotten what it's like to drive into that driveway um, of that workout place and um, to try to find a parking place because all the skinny people are parking right up front so they can run in and, you know, work out. And I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but anyway, I said, I haven't forgotten. And, you know, you walk clear across the parking lot and you get in there and you have to change your clothes. And it, by the time you get in the pool, you're exhausted. And then you work out in the pool and then you're really tired. And... I said, you know, when I see someone like that working out, I think they're brave. And he started crying, and he said, are you telling me you think I'm brave? And I said, yes. I've seen many instances in which you're brave. He asked workers' comp for a membership to the pool. He started going once a week, twice a week, three times a week. Pretty soon he was going every day. And then on one of our coaching sessions, he said, it happened. And I said, what happened? And he said, the guys that were all changing on the wall, on the other side of the wall from me um, yesterday when I was working out, they started saying all those things that I told you they'd say. If I looked like that, I'd never go out of the house. Did you see that great big fat guy? And, you know, on and on and on they went. And he got really, really angry. And he said, I, I decided I was going to go and I was going to finish changing my clothes and I was going to tell him what I thought. And he walked around the wall, and the guys all had, you know, their eyes were really big. And he changed his mind all of a sudden, and he said, do you know why I'm here? And they didn't answer. They just were looking at him. And he said, I'm here because Becky says I'm brave. And um, when he turned around and walked, uh, walked down the hall, he heard one of them whisper, who the hell is Becky? <laughs> but at this point... At this point, he decided that he wasn't going to quit going to the gym. The next time he showed up, they apologized. They became encouragers of him instead of discouragers. 
they figured out what was what was going on with him and that they wanted to help that and that was really neat because by then we'd been working together long enough that he he knew that he had the strength to do this even to face those people um, so what we want is from people to go from intrinsic motivating motivating uh, motivated <laughs> so you know the provider tells them all these things that they need to do and what happens <laughs> There's a lot of resistance that happens, isn't there? Until you start questioning, what do they want? How do they want to do this? And we use motivational interviewing and ACT and CBT and all these different um, theories to help them find that <clears throat> extrinsic motivation. I used to be strong and I'd like to feel like that again. I'm an artist. I would like to have enough energy to go up one flight of stairs to my art studio. Sounds like really little things, but these are things that motivated him. I'd like to feel clear-headed. I would like to get off my medications. I enjoy spending time with the guys at the pool. <laughs> I feel motivated to go to the pool each day. They became friends. So this is that moving from cure me mentality to realizing they're active things that can be done to manage the experience of pain. This is my friend. Eric, and um, that's his story. And I just want to say that there's hope um, for your patients that have pain. Um, there's many things, many modalities that can be used um, for people to get off their opioids, which is what he did, and to get back to life and really um, find their own inner strength and do life again. So I don't know if we have time, but we'd, we'd like to um, open this up for questions. If any of you have any questions? Yes? Oh, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm, I'm happy to share my story wherever I can. Thank you. Any any questions for either one of us? Yeah. What was your access What was my access to behavioral health services? Well, the really um, I had some um, when I was in rehab. I had several sessions with the psychologist. Um, at the at that point, um, I guess I'm gonna just out myself as an optimist and a happy person <laughs> he <laughs> he um he thought i was in denial because i was really doing okay mentally during that time it was two years out when i developed the syrinx that i really hit the bottom and i didn't have access until i went to the functional restoration program and there it was very multidisciplinary um, and the psychologist worked with me and i would say that the most helpful thing for me during that time was learning to accept and that's that's what we see I, I know dr. Pohl mentioned it as well this is a lifetime thing and so that acceptance of this is this is my normal this is my new normal and you know when you let go of all the anxiety um, and you realize this this is normal then the negative affect goes away and the fear avoidance goes away and the vitality goes up and the mobility goes up and so it's
kind of a neat process. Yeah, and, and I would just say the, the biggest challenge when uh, I share about what I have in my facility versus what you might have in your facility is, well, you know, I, I'm a lone practitioner. So I think developing resources, first off, your own abilities, you know, and, and, and insights and understanding, because I think that, that connecting with the patient is the first and foremost thing that you can do in your office. And then finding alliances, you know, whether you have somebody in your office who comes once a week and runs a group for you of people with chronic pain, or get a meditation CD and, and, and loan it to the patient and check in and see how they're doing it, or spend five minutes, you know, learn a meditation and, and go through that with the patient. So, you know, actually implementing those kinds of things, having a relationship with physical therapists that aren't going to just put them on a heating pad and and uh, you know, do their 10 sessions. Um, but I, I think all of these resources take work and, and uh, interplay and interaction with other professionals, and I would just encourage you to find those resources in your community. So uh, go straight on. You know, I mean, I think that the start would be, I know your pain is real, and you know, I just came back from this course, and I heard that 80% of pain is in the brain and emotions and thoughts. So could we, you know, I don't want to you know, downplay your pain. I know it's real, but let's talk about this other part of it, even if it's 50%. We're not paying any attention to that. Are you willing to do that? And if you're not, then the way Becky talked about working with that, that patient, you know, what's your resistance? What's going to happen if you do that? Look, we have people who come in, uh, some, some are mandated by the court system. They're as resistant as you could possibly imagine. We have a Reiki master at our center, you know, the most woo-woo uh, treatment out there, you know. And if you're a Reiki master, I apologize. But, you know, it's, it's out of the norm. And this 72-year-old guy with cervical fusion said, I'm not going to do any of that Reiki crap. And I said, well, just, you know, just go to one session. And if you don't like it, we'll double up on your acupuncture. Well, this guy saw an aura. It was purple. And his pain went from a 9 to a 0. And he now, he lives in New Hampshire, and he drives through snowstorms to go to his Reiki master in Boston because it is the treatment that worked for him. So, you know, working with resistance and do a little investigating on motivational interviewing on how you take that resistance and work with it. Because there isn't anybody who comes in who doesn't want help. So if you can help them see that you have some help for them, it's not the way they want to go, then you can redirect. And if it's a longitudinal practice and you see them time and time again, plant the seed and then you know, water it and then revisit the next visit. Got time for one more? One minute. We have a one yeah. minute question. Go ahead. Yeah. It's a, not a one-minute question, sir. <laughs> yeah. 
so uh, I'll, uh, briefly, you know, when we think of trauma, I mean, Becky's a great example of somebody who's experienced an incredible trauma and survived and surpassed it. But there's many levels of trauma. There's certainly sexual, physical, emotional, witness trauma, first responders and veterans who experience these kinds of things. Uh, there's what we call little t trauma, people who've grown up with these little insults across the course of their life who have not been able to internalize that sense of self-efficacy. And then we see medical trauma, people who've been through surgery upon surgery upon surgery, spent a month in the ICU on antibiotics. I mean, that's traumatizing. And now we have the world, you know, which is extraordinarily traumatizing. So I think acknowledging that it's so, acknowledging that it contributes to the experience of pain, and then I mean, it takes specialty care, typically, to really treat someone with trauma well, and it takes long, it's such a tough, I mean, no easy solution to that. Uh, but paying attention to it and acknowledging it is the first step. Thank you all very, very Thank much. Thank you.